LFC podcast is part of the Electronic Voice Phenomenon Strand for Liverpool Biennial 2012. It is produced by Mercy in partnership with Liverpool Biennial. For more information and to sign up for updates, visit biennial.com or mercyonline.co.uk forward slash podcasts. It's the end of the first week of Liverpool Biennial 2012, and this is Mercy Podcast number three. I've been floating around the city like some kind of super absorbent biennial sponge, trying to soak up all the best bits of what's been happening in the city. Today I'll be bringing you some snippets of sound from one of the opening events of the biennial, uh, Reese Chatham's A Crimson Grail also interviewed some artists who've taken unusual approaches to distributing their work to audiences throughout the biennial. I'll be chatting to Olafur Olofsson and Libya Castro, who've made a piece called The Right to Write, which has been distributed in the form of a newspaper. I'll also be chatting with Bubblebyte, who've distributed their work via the web in the form of a web takeover of the Royal Standards site. And finally, I'll also speak to Alan Dunn, a Liverpool-based artist who held an event last Sunday night called Private, held at the very highest height in the city at the top of the Radio City Tower. There's a new sound, the new sound around. Now, before everyone starts to think that I've gone completely mad, I should say that the track you can hear in the background is a piece of music called The Sound of Worms by Tony Borello. This was brought to my attention this week by a Liverpool-based writer called Chris Fagan. Chris wrote a nice feature about these podcasts for The Double Negative, so thank you to them for that. But he also sent us a submission for our weekly Parasites feature, which is basically an invitation to writers to submit a short piece of writing on the theme of Parasites. And when Chris sent his submission, he also sent this track, which I think I like so much, it's probably going to become the unofficial soundtrack to the Parasites. Parasites in this edition were written by Lindsay Sekowovich and Tamari Nord. So deep down in the ground is the sound that's made by worms. <laughs> Now, if you're planning a visit to Liverpool Biennial this year, it's quite likely that you'll use the web at some point to plan your activities. While gallery websites are full of branding and marketing information, you probably wouldn't necessarily expect to encounter art on a gallery's website. As part of a larger programme of events for this year's biennial, local studio group and gallery, the Royal Standard, have subverted this expectation by inviting online platform Bubblebyte to curate a takeover of their site. The music that you can hear in the background while I'm talking is made by artist Hannah Perry. She's just one of the artists that Bubblebyte.org have recruited to contribute to a complete overhaul of the Royal Standards website for the duration of the biennial. The project is an unusual take on the biennial theme of hospitality. The Royal Standard website has become a host for Bubblebyte.org. 
I've spoken to a few people who found the web takeover a little bit difficult to use because uh, it's literally like text and menus and links are revolving and you have to kind of chase them with the mouse to try and click on them. Um, but apart from being a little bit unuser friendly, it's also really cool. The audio is really catchy, uh, it looks great, the colours are fantastic. If you check out www.the-royal-standard.com then you can have a look for yourself because it's all online. I caught up with one half of Bubble Bites, artist Rhys Corrin, to ask him what it is about distributing his work on the web that really makes him tick. It is just exciting being able to reach so many people, you know. Yeah. Thousands and thousands of people can just look at the same thing. Yeah. That's, that was the primary um, influence, really, for me and Atelier to set up Bubble Bite as an online platform. Mm. I think we both really were excited by the fact that you could engage with work in its primary form wherever you were, you know, you just needed access to the internet yeah. and, and a way like a computer basically. If you can't come to the biennial this year then probably having a look at work online is a fairly good way of pretending. If you want to create an authentic-ish biennial experience then I recommend that you check out rhizome.org's programme for Liverpool Biennial. They're offering an artist each week throughout the biennial the opportunity to curate five videos responding to Liverpool Biennial's theme, which of course you'll know if you've been paying attention is hospitality. They're also again obviously playing with the idea of being an online host. And this week's programme is chosen by Ming Wong, um, an artist who is also in the biennial, um, showing an exhibition at 28 to 32 Wood Street. So like I say, if you're not able to come to Liverpool and see that exhibition, you can at least have a little look at what he's presenting online. The web address for checking that out is www.rhizome.org. That's R-H-I-Z-O-M-E. I should also say that that Rhizome programme is a collaboration with Liverpool-based organisation FACT. <laughs> Time for a new feature now, which will appear fairly regularly in these podcasts, although not every week. We invited our friend and artist Oliver Braid to collaborate with us. Oliver is one half of the Ellie and Oliver show, which is a regular artist-led broadcast which comes out of their flat in Glasgow on a Friday afternoon. Oliver used to be based in Liverpool and was showing work at Cave Art Fair during the opening weekend of the biennial. His work is recognised as bringing fresh perspectives on how we view contemporary art. So while he was here in Liverpool, we invited him to make some immediate suggestions for alternative ways that we might respond to artworks in the biennial. And he did this with some interesting results. Oliver Braid's immediate suggestion. Hello, my name is Oliver Braid and I'm an artist and I live in Glasgow. Uh, I'm here at the moment at the 2012 Liverpool Biennial um, and what I'm going to be doing on these podcasts is presenting some immediate suggestions for different ways that we could understand artwork available to us during this period of time. 
Uh, we're starting at the Blue Coat, and we're here inside a Dan Graham artwork. As I, worked, uh, as I walked towards the main gates of the Blue Coat, I began to see the reflection of myself in the work, and I began to think, oh, I wonder if this is the type of work that we could take somebody on a date to see, so that perhaps if we were on a blind date, because the outside is reflective, we could look at them at the same time as we were pretending to look at the artwork. Uh, but the one thing that I thought was slightly better about this artwork uh, is in relation to harassed mothers at the Blue Coat. So for harassed mothers coming to the Blue Coat, this is for you. Uh, I suppose lots of people come drop in because we're in the centre of town, they might come for a coffee. And as it's the biennial, they might also feel slightly obliged to look at an artwork. I've just seen quite a harassed uh, mother while I was in the courtyard. She was trying desperately to drag a child back into the blue coat, uh, to, presumably to look at some artwork, where actually what the child wanted to do was look at the birds outside in the courtyard. And what I was thinking to myself was, what makes the Dan Graham artwork so perfect is we can do both things at the same time. What can happen is the harassed mother can come inside or stand on the outside. And because the work is see-through, the mother never has to completely admit to herself that the child is looking at the birds or looking at something else. She can enjoy the work where the child can continue to just admire the birds. And then, of course, we can come in here. Uh, another way, slightly in relation to dating, is that we can stand inside the Graham artwork and pull the door across. And from the outside, it's slightly more reflective, so you can't instantly see in. What we can do is, on a sunnier day, we can admire beautiful art gentlemen walking by and kind of covertly hide from them a little bit. But should we wish to uh, draw attention to ourselves, we can draw the door, hopefully. Oh, yeah, it makes quite a dramatic unveiling sound. And it can be as if we're on a sort of blind date with somebody. Perhaps we could... Um, trip over this metal exterior and uh, well probably not fall too hard because that might be a bit embarrassing but we could do a dainty little trip and uh, perhaps drop something like a bottle of water and then a gentleman could pick it up for us and if we get talking we could even draw the door back over it's also quite a good artwork for perverts because if you're in here doing this on one side somebody else like a kind of a, a dogging scenario could be watching through the grid on the other side which i think is really nice so it's like uh, we could have it as a kind of sex prison or as a way to entertain children without mothers being too stressed um yeah that's my immediate suggestion for the dan graham artwork all of vertebrates, immediate suggestion. Brilliant. We love you, Oliver Braid. Oliver will be back in a couple of weeks with another immediate suggestion. Our mouths have begun. Our mouths have begun to concern us when we speak. We begin to form a phrase. We listen to it, arrive and extrude it through our mouth muscles, thick in the throat and lumpen on the tongue. We feel our lips forming each word fractionally too soon, as though they were impersonating the shape of each sound and only committing the shapes to speech as a test of our resolve. The affliction is starting to spread from the fleshy preparation of the mouth to the cranial machine set behind the face. Our grammar is starting to show. The words fail to loosen themselves properly from the outer parts of the mouth. They spool from our lips on ribbons of knotted membrane 
the cool in the air and are drawn back into the mouth by the tug's subsequent words, conferring their attachment to the hierarchies of grammar by quick snaps of regurgitation. We are learning to listen for signs that this new thickness about the mouth might be emerging audibly into the room, and we patrol the skin of our lips for traces secret repulsion that tightens our skin and our nostrils while we work our conversations. We contain the lowering of the stomach muscles, the grip of the larynx, and the pestilent crimping of the edges of the mouth, and with an effort of concentration we conduct talking as though it were normal. We ascertain with some relief that we sound unremarkable provided we show no alarm. Moving on from online distribution with potential audiences of thousands, to an event that happened this week that was a little bit more intimate. We got a call from Liverpool-based artist Alan Dunn, inviting us to an event called Private that he was holding at the Radio City Tower this week. For those of you listening outside of Liverpool, I should explain that the Radio City Tower is one of the most iconic buildings in the city. Um, It's a kind of a very weird futuristic looking piece of concrete. If you imagine a flying saucer getting stuck on top of a giant chimney uh, and the whole thing getting solidified in concrete, that's kind of what it looks like. Because of capacity issues with the venue itself, the event was only open for 35 guests. It involved a programme of live performance and spoken word, and also a curated collection of sound works that Alan had amassed in response to the site of the Radio City Tower. Having enjoyed myself at the event, I wanted to ask Alan a little bit more about his motivations for creating such an exclusive event when very often contemporary artists have to jostle to get attention for their work. I also managed to convince him to give me access to a few of the sound files that were used during the event. You will hear small clips from a few of those over the next few minutes and a full track listing can be found on the Mercy website. I've never felt comfortable in galleries, never ever ever, so I see that as a positive thing. I was taught by an elderly Scotch chap called George Wiley who compared galleries to a bathtub, but he said he'd rather sail in, a, in an ocean. And the Radio City Tower is a comforting icon, it's very futuristic. Um, it was built in 1969. I, I remember visiting it in the mid-90s when I moved here, when it was open in Architecture Week. And I remember it being quite 70s and sci-fi. And I, from what I know, it closed in the early 80s. Reopened as a Blade Runner theme cafe for six months, I believe it. I like the fact it's the most public building in Liverpool. Also most private, you can't just walk in. One of the, the main conditions of hiring it was you could only have 50 people up there. That was the whole point of this event, to, to give people the opportunity to just relax a bit, a bit of a you know, yeah. treadmill sometimes, with visual arts, and just to be able to relax and just think about you know, what we're doing up here. It's not, I've, I've talked to a colleague who's just come back from Documenta and said there's just so much, too much 
So I think as, as creative people, we're trying to deal with this notion of, of you know, what the internet's offered us and what biennials and festivals have grown. There's so much, there's, there's just almost too much. Where does the point come when there's literally too much at a festival? or document it or Venice. Um, and Greg Milner's written a lot about MP3 fatigue, whereby there's so much available, but it's been slightly, well, particularly with MP3, which is only 10% of what the file should be. So things have been sliced and rushed and, you know, all was just cut corners been cut off. I was having a conversation Sunday night with someone and she was tweeting what was happening as opposed to listening to me. And that, that, that was a really interesting moment yeah. where I accept that's what goes on, it's great, but I thought, can you just stop we're having a conversation yeah. about what's happening. I know you're tweeting about what's happening, but what's happening is not happening because you're tweeting about it. So <laughs> I had all these kind of, um, you know, strange events. So yeah, yeah. It was a standing still for a couple of hours. Another iconic building in Liverpool, St George's Hall, has also been tampered with by an artist this biennial. The Right to Write by Libya Castro and Olafur Olofsson is a huge neon piece that probably will be in the line of vision of most Liverpoolians over the next few weeks. The work is accompanied by a newspaper-style publication uh, written by the artist in collaboration with the philosopher Nina Power. The intention of this work is very much a political one. Uh, the origin of the sentence, the right to write, is about questioning who has the power to decide who has rights. The artists are particularly interested in interrogating the power of the state to decide who has rights and who does not. I thought it was interesting that the artists had chosen forms of distribution that seemed to reflect the political intent of their work. The artist told me a little bit about how and why they were using the newspaper format to distribute their work throughout Liverpool. Here they are in the venues yes. for the art public, but then we are spreading them as well in the city, just for people around that are maybe not visiting the show. Yeah. That is, that's yeah, this, why this, we this. chose the newspaper. And then, for example, the newspaper format, it's the first time that we do it, but we really, really find it very interesting since you can work with text and image. But as well, we want very often to reach out of the art context and therefore we are using media as for example now a publication yes. or we work with, with uh, within the public uh, space in this uh, piece, the, the, neon, the neon piece as well, yeah. you know, it is outside, it's not in a, in a white cube or in a special space, yeah. it, it becomes part of the city and the architecture. The neon piece that is on the side of St George's Hall is pretty spectacular if you go and look at it at night. It in turn spells out the right to write and then the right to write wrong. Um, so that's definitely worth checking out if you can. Also, the artists are set to publish some of their newspaper publication in the Liverpool Daily Post one day during the biennial. scapegoat parasite. Almost 100 years ago, Scottish biologist Darcy Wentworth Thompson described the mathematical principles of honeycomb, likening bee construction techniques to cell division in embryology. Like all insects that weave webs and spin cocoons, bees represent interconnectedness. An individual colony is a microcosm of human society, or a mirror of electrical systems within the brain. Worldwide, 
there is a decline in swifts, swallows and other birds, frogs, toads, bats and all species of insect including bumblebees and honeybees. Researchers from the Division of Neuroscience at Dundee University are studying declining bee colonies in Scotland and various factors involved, including the use of industrial pesticides, particularly the controversial group of neonicetinoids. The team's research hives were stolen last year. It seems that this research is unpopular. Their research reveals an east-west divide in the loss of hives that doesn't correspond to climactic or geographic expectations. Unsurprisingly, the greatest losses are occurring in regions of arable farmland. They have also found the microsporidium Nosema karenii present in over 80% of Scottish hives, suggesting that pesticides are lowering the immune system of the bees, leaving them susceptible to attack from this and other pathogens and parasites such as the varroa mite. Two years ago, in the UK, 73,578 kilograms of neonacetinoids were applied over almost 3 million acres of farmland. In the mammalian brain, the hippocampus is involved with memory function and spatial navigation. In insects, the equivalent brain structure is the mushroom body. Mushroom bodies exist as dense networks of neuronal processes with excitation and inhibition receptors, which the neonicetinoids specifically target. In honeybees, a dose equivalent to one teaspoon in 1,000 metric tons of water produces chronic changes in navigation and feeding activity, leaving bees stranded and unable to return to their hives. And in turn, the hives are unable to generate heat or energy to sustain life. It's almost time for my name to stop scrolling the screen of your iPod for another week. But before it does, I've just got some exciting news to bring you about next week's podcast. I'll be popping up briefly at the beginning, but the majority will be given over to our guest host, sound art guru, Scanner. This special edition is intended to whet your appetite for the Mercy Weekender which is coming up during the biennial from the 5th to the 7th of October. As part of that weekend on Saturday the 6th of October, Scanner will be doing a new commission presenting EVP recordings from a theatre in Stockholm built in 1766. So uh, the, the mix that he's doing next week will be themed a little bit around EVP and will just give you a little glimpse as to what he might be doing when he comes to play live in Liverpool. It's actually really exciting and something you definitely need to make sure is already in your biennial diary. Due to Andrew's busyness and my complete incompetence, we haven't had a track suggested by Andrew Ellis of Samistat this week, unfortunately. So I've decided just to close the show with a little tribute to Andrew and the event that he put on on the opening night of the biennial. He brought New York no-wave guitar guru Reese Chatham to Liverpool for the second time and managed to round up a hundred eager guitarists to play Reese's composition A Crimson Grail in the very spectacular setting of the Liverpool Anglican Cathedral. It was one of those events that just inevitably brought you out in goosebumps. 
I'm just going to let a few minutes of a recording that we made at the event on Friday run for a few minutes. Uh, excuse the rustling and the giggling, it is a bootleg copy. Um, don't forget, if you want to get hold of me at all this week, I'm on at Vanessa Bartlett, Twitter is your best bet, and I'll see you next week.